Pray with me. God and Father, as we turn now to your word, pray that you would be speaking to us through it. Pray that you would be building us up in the life of Christ. May we be changed as we meet with Jesus, although we are sinners. And may I faithfully proclaim his word, though I am a sinner. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our experience of life is often determined by our expectations. Our experience of life is often determined by our expectations. You imagine like two young people just out of college starting their careers, and one of them, his expectation is that he's going to have immediate success and accolades. He thinks, look out world, I am here. He thinks he's gonna show up for the first day of work and by lunchtime, they're gonna be like, you know, we, we need a new CEO and he's immediately gonna get recognition and make a lot of money. That's one of the kids. The other kid, he has the expectation that it's going to take a lot of hard work and effort in order for him to succeed. His expectation is that he's gonna to have to prove himself and that it might take years of diligent labor so that he can eventually reach a point of excellence. You take those two young people and you drop them both in a typical entry-level job and their experiences of that job are going to be completely different. The first young person is going to end up discouraged and frustrated because and I hope that this isn't too disappointing to those of you who are teenagers that are listening in, but he doesn't get recognized immediately. Everyone does not instantly have this awe and wonder at his talents, and so you have that. And then on the other hand, the other young person is gonna see this as an opportunity. This is exactly what they expected, and they're going to lean into that entry-level job because it fits with their expectations about how their career is going to work. Our experience of life is determined by our expectations. And that isn't just true of starting out in a career. That is true of basically everything. If you go into marriage expecting that it's going to be a honeymoon 24-7, you are going to be disappointed. If you pick up a hobby expecting that you're instantly going to be a master at it, you're going to quickly give up in frustration. If you move into the world expecting that you can have everyone be happy and like you, you better not have very many human relationships. Our experience of life is determined by our expectations. And I think Jesus is trying to speak to just those expectations to his disciples in our story today. So here's what we're gonna do. First, we're gonna walk through the story and I'm gonna show you what we're talking about. I'm gonna show you this truth and we're gonna talk about it. And then we're gonna apply it to two areas. First, a big picture area in terms of our world, and then a specific area in terms of each of our lives. But first, let's look at the story. So in verse 12, Jesus goes up on this mountain and he prays all night. In the Gospel of Luke, before every major decision, we see people in prayer, which is supposed to teach us something about prayer. But then in verse 13, it says this. It says, when day came, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. Now a disciple is someone who follows a teacher in order to learn from them. They follow a teacher in order to learn from them. And there is this group of disciples that are following Jesus. What Jesus does is he gathers all of them together and from them he picks 12 of them who are he calls apostles, the, the key kind of witnesses and leaders of the disciples. 
11 of these people are going to end up becoming the leaders of the early church, and one of them is going to end up betraying Jesus. But Jesus calls these disciples together, and then after that, he goes down with the disciples, and this huge crowd gathers around Jesus, and here's what happens. It says, starting in 18, the crowd came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch Jesus, for power came out from him and healed them all. So the crowds gather, and Jesus is healing people and casting out demons, and they're hanging on his every word. What I want you to do is use your imagination and put yourself in the shoes of one of Jesus' disciples. Maybe specifically in the shoes of these 12 apostles that he has just appointed. You are the leaders of the disciples. You've been given this place of authority and trust. What are your expectations in this moment of what it's going to mean to be an apostle? Celebrity? Wealth? Everyone liking you and you being really popular? I mean, I mean, here as people are pressing in and Jesus is healing them, you've got to feel like your expectations for the life of discipleship are really high until Jesus starts to preach. A couple things about the sermon that we're going to read the first part of this morning. So this is the beginning of what people call the Sermon on the Plain because it is a sermon in Luke that is recorded as being preached on this plain, this large flat area. And it is similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. And so first, just a note about that. Jesus preaches similar things many times in his ministry. You might notice that there's these similarities, but they happen at different places and there's slight differences. And some people point to that and say like, oh, these are contradictions or these people are making stuff up. But look, here's the reality. In the ancient world, before television, before the internet, before the ability to record people talking, before literacy was even really a thing, if you wanted people to hear what you had to say, what you had to do is travel around and say it over and over. That still happens in our world. If you've ever gone and listened to a politician give a stump speech, they did not make that speech up specifically for you and the hundred people there. They've preached some version of this speech over and over. They change it a little bit depending on where they are, but they're saying the same thing repeatedly. And that's what happens in Jesus's ministry, which is why we have these different parables and stories, because Jesus told them many times. But that said, the other thing we need to recognize about this is who Jesus is talking to. If you look at, in verse 20, it says that Jesus lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and then he starts to talk. And that is really important for us to understand as we think about this Sermon on the Plain, as we think about what we're about to read, because there's really two ways that people approach it. Jesus is about to declare these blessings and these woes on these groups of people, and there's two ways to read it. And I think the wrong way, but the way that many people read it, is that Jesus is somehow here talking about how to get saved or which people he's coming to save. And that raises questions for people, because when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, woe to the rich, then we're like, wait, so does that mean that like, it's necessary for salvation to be poor? Does that mean that if you're wealthy that you can't be saved? And the, the problem with all of that is that that's reading that wrong, because Luke told us that Jesus is talking to his disciples, his disciples who are already following him and have already put their trust in him. So that's the wrong way to read this. Instead, the right way to read this sermon is that Jesus is setting expectations for the life of the disciple. 
He's not saying in order to be saved, here's the list of things you have to do. He's saying, you are following me. I have saved you and you are a part of this new humanity that I am founding. Here is what you should expect about what life is going to look like. To see that, let's work through the series of blessings and woes that Jesus declares. If you start in verse 20, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, poverty in the Bible is not only about money. Uh, For example, King David in the Old Testament in the Psalms regularly describes himself as poor and needy, but he's the king, so he's obviously not talking economically. Poverty is an image for anyone that's in a place of helplessness or a place where they're facing opposition, a place of need. But it also includes the economically poor. And certainly part of what Jesus is speaking to is the reality that some of his disciples are economically not very well off. He says, blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. What Jesus is promising them is that they're blessed because their citizenship is in the kingdom that he is coming to bring. Go on, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Again, hunger is not only about physically not having food to eat. Matthew renders us the similar blessing of Jesus as blessed are you who hunger and thirst for righteousness. But Jesus says that you are blessed even in the midst of need, even in the midst of lack, even when you recognize these things that you long for and you do not have them. Blessed are the hungry, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. When you see the world's brokenness and you experience the world's brokenness and grief at that wells up in your heart, Jesus says, you are blessed. And then blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets." Now, this one has to be especially challenging to those apostles that Jesus has just called. They're given this place of authority and importance, and what Jesus says is, guess what leadership means for my disciples? What it means is that you will be persecuted and excluded and insulted and cast out from human society. And he says, we can prove that to you. He says, you should rejoice and be glad in that because in that you're just like those other leaders, the prophets. One of the marks of God's true prophets in the Old Testament is that everybody hates them and that they are persecuted and insulted and scorned, and some of them are even killed. Jesus says that is the expectation you should have as the people who are following me. And he doubles down on that then by offering these woes, these curses. He says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now we need to be clear about what Jesus is and isn't saying. Like we already said, this is not Jesus talking about who can be saved. He is not saying that if you are happy or if you are financially well off that you cannot be saved. But what he is saying is that we need to understand what we are and aren't following him for. He says, when you follow me, you can do it for two reasons. You can do it because of the kingdom of God that I've promised to these people, or you can do it because you're pursuing earthly blessings. 
That's especially pertinent because what he's been doing right now is he's been healing people and casting out demons. He's been fixing people's physical problems, and he is saying that if that is all that you're in this for, if what you're all about is riches and having enough to eat and just having a happy, easy life, then you are actually going to miss the life of discipleship and the hope of the kingdom. The blessings of this world, if they are what we are seeking, will always cause us to compromise in following Jesus. He makes that clear in the last woe. He says, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If a mark of the true prophets in the Old Testament was rejection, a mark of being a false prophet was your popularity. Everybody loved the false prophets. They, they, they were welcomed and celebrated because they just told people what they want to hear. And Jesus says that if you're, if you're doing this for that, you're going to compromise what's true. So summing all of that up, what are the expectations Jesus is setting for his disciples and for us? Our expectation for the faithful Christian life is that it should be one of present suffering but ultimate blessing. Our expectation for the faithful Christian life is that it should be one of present suffering but ultimate blessing. And by ultimate blessing, I mostly mean blessing in the kingdom of God and when Jesus returns. Let's talk about that. Scripture, first of all, should lead us to expect suffering in this age. Somehow this is not the thing that American preachers like to talk about, but look, Jesus, right? He says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The Apostle Paul, talking about his ministry, says, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for him. We're writing to Timothy, his protege. Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The psalmist tells us, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Or King Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, reflecting on the suffering that comes with human life, very darkly says, I thought the dead who were already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Scripture bears clear and consistent testimony to that. Now we might hear that and we might say, wait, aren't there blessings in this life in following Jesus? Aren't there blessings and good promises in this life? And the answer to that is yes, there can be. It is true that obeying God's commands puts you in moving in the right direction with the world, and oftentimes that that can bring good consequences in the world. It is true that living wisely, fearing God and having biblical wisdom can often bring blessings and benefits in this life. It is true that knowing Jesus brings joy and sweetness to our days. Those are all blessings that can be there, but the thing we have to understand is none of them are guaranteed. They are not guaranteed. The things we are promised, the ultimate blessings, lie in the future, in the kingdom of God. And the problem is that when we take those blessings and instead of recognizing that they can happen, the problem becomes when we make those things our expectations. When we confuse the blessings of this age with what God guarantees only in the age to come. And that's a problem for two reasons. One, because it can lead to enormous disappointment in this life. Enormous disappointment. I have talked 
to brothers and sisters who are walking away from Jesus because they grew up in a Christianity that promised them that if they just trusted Jesus enough, everything would be happy and carefree and good. And when life didn't turn out that way, they felt like he had betrayed them. They'd been lied to. And that is a problem because those wrong expectations lead us to idolatry. That if it is the blessings of this age that we're seeking when we're following Jesus, that it is not actually Jesus that we're following. People who win the lottery, there's been some interesting studies of them, and one of the things that they report, I mean, they report being enormously unhappy. Nobody gets happy from winning the lottery. But the thing that they report is that a lot of that unhappiness comes from the fact that they suddenly are confronted with all of these people who are seeking to be their friends for the wrong reasons. That they're seeking friendship with them, not because they care about them, but simply because of the wealth that they think that it can bring. And oftentimes, people can follow Jesus in exactly the same way. If what we promise ourselves, if what our expectation is, is about earthly blessings, then while we're saying we're following Jesus, what we're really in it for is just the earthly blessings. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry, blessed are those who weep. And if we experience those things and we turn our back on him, then we're revealing that it was not Jesus that we were chasing. Again, our expectation for the faithful Christian life should be that it will be one of present suffering, but ultimate blessing. So that's the expectation Jesus tries to set for his disciples. Now I want to apply that to two areas, one big and one little. First big picture, let's talk about our world, the world that we live in, in this moment. Let me suggest two things to you that are true. One is that in our world, in our, in our country, in the time and place that we live, we as Christians have experienced enormous privileges, especially those of us who are white and middle-class Christians. We have experienced enormous privileges. Society has been set up to give us many of those earthly blessings. And if you doubt me, look, just like, it's no accident that for most of the 20th century and 19th century, when people described the respectable professions, what they talked about is doctors and lawyers and preachers. It's no accident that almost every politician for most of our history has talked about their Christian faith, even though I guarantee you that not all of those people had a deep Christian faith. There were these enormous blessings that we were given in this world that came alongside our Christian faith. And look, that always was a little mixed because it always to really experience that required some amount of compromise of our faith. If you were really sold out for Jesus, if you were really deeply trying to live the life of the disciple, it's true that then people might look at you a little sideways and give you a hard time. But still, compared to our brothers and sisters who live in places where they can be executed or arrested for just claiming the name of Christ, we were still enormously privileged. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is that that is starting to change. Now, I think that people are prone to fear and alarmism, and they sometimes oversell how much that's changing. But it is absolutely true that having faith in Jesus and professing your hope in his name does not get you the kind of respect and honor that it used to. And it is entirely possible in the future that it might even cost us relationally, economically, socially. That is changing. But here's the thing. I hear people talk about those changes often and they're worried and they're freaked out. And, and the thing I always want to ask them, 
is what did you expect? What did you expect when you were following Jesus? And I know that that's harsh, but the thing is, many of us, because of where we grew up and the privileges we had, we never had to wrestle with our expectations. We never had to wrestle with what Jesus actually says in passages like this one. The American dream lied to us, and it said that we could have Jesus and we could be rich and full and happy all the time. And because of that lie, many of us are running up against the reality that we have been given the wrong expectations. I was listening the other day to, I mean, look, I don't like to talk about politics, but I, I read and follow that just like every, many of the rest of you. I was listening to this guy talking about politics and he's talking about all these ways that our freedom and religious liberty in America is being undermined. And like some of the things he's saying I disagree with and some of them are totally true, but he's saying all these things and kind of getting more and more excited. And then he says, if this happens, if we lose this religious liberty, that is an existential threat to Christianity in America. That is an existential threat to Christianity, meaning that it will end our existence. And I heard that, and my head jerked up, and I was like, wait, what? Because that fundamentally shows we have the wrong expectations of Christianity. I mean, suffering is not an existential threat to Christianity. It is a normal part of the Christian life. Scripture tells us that over and over. Persecution is not an existential threat to Christianity. The church grew in soil watered by the blood of the martyrs. If the church of Jesus Christ could be undone because some country voted some way and, and took away some rights from us, then we should not worship Jesus. We should go worship that country instead. When we have the right expectations, we're able to confront the problems and challenges that do present us in the world in what I think is a biblical way, which is to say that we do what we can, but that we also have confident peace regardless. Having the right expectations means that we do what we can, but we have confident peace regardless. So first, we do what we can. It, I am not in any of this saying that we shouldn't try to have good outcomes in this world, right? You should save money even though you're not trusting in riches and it might be taken away from you. You should be safe and try to be healthy even though you could die this afternoon. Uh, you, you should work for, for freedom and for the flourishing of our society even though we may well have it stripped away from us. So we do what we can, but we have confident peace regardless of what happens. We have confident peace. Because even if we do what we can and none of those outcomes happen, even if things get hard and we face poverty and hunger and grief and persecution, that should be no more than what we expected. I mean, I think about the Apostle Paul. He was a man who had the right expectations for the Christian life. And as a consequence, nobody could stop him. Because he had the right expectations, the world just didn't know what to do with Paul. I mean, they'd come and they'd threaten to kill him, and he'd say, to die is gain. And they'd say, well, I guess we'll just leave you alive then. And he'd say, to live is Christ. And they'd lock him up in prison, and he would say, I am an ambassador in chains, declaring God's word boldly. And they'd beat and persecute him, and he'd say, the light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. The Apostle Paul was open-eyed about the challenges and pain that can come in this life as we follow Jesus, and as a consequence, the world could not touch him. That should be our attitude as well. So that's big picture, our expectations about the world. But then I also want to zoom in and talk about our personal lives and the way that we experience life in this world. And so I want to start with 
I want to give two ideas. I want to start with the hard idea, and then I want to give you a hopeful idea. A hard idea and then a hopeful one. And first, the hard idea, we need to be realistic about suffering in our world. We should be realistic about the fact that many of us will suffer in this life. I mean, we have for several years now, for four and a half years now, been walking with Elizabeth's cancer and for three years with her terminal diagnosis. And people often come up to me or her and what they say is they say, I just can't believe that something like this is happening to you or to your wife. They say, I just can't believe it. I appreciate their heart in those moments. But what I always want to say is, what do you mean you can't believe it? I mean, what on earth led you to the conclusion that things like this can't happen to people like us? I mean, you didn't get that from the Bible, right? And never mind the stuff that we just read. I mean, you start reading the Bible and, and you've, got, you've got humans doing terrible things to other human beings and humans having terrible things done to them and you have parents losing children and you have people dying needlessly and families falling apart and that's just the book of Genesis. And you keep going and you've got, you know, Job like suffering these terrible tragedies even though he is righteous. And you have the psalmist crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? And you have the prophets who suffered immensely for telling the truth about God. And you have Jesus who was crucified and Paul who, who was imprisoned and shipwrecked and ultimately executed. You did not get that idea from scripture. And you didn't get that idea from history either. I mean, if you just think about the, the history of the world that we've lived in, right? So many of the early Christians we respect were killed for their faith, and believers have suffered terrible diseases and plagues. And I mean, I think about, I think about like John Owen, who is one of my favorite of the Puritan divines. You know, it probably says something about me that I have favorites of the Puritan divines, but John Owen, right, who, who loved the Lord and worked for him in his life, he had 11 children, and 10 of them died as infants. And the one that didn't grew up to be a young woman and got married and then immediately died after that. We were given the wrong expectations about the world if we did not recognize that suffering is a normal part of our lives. We were given the wrong expectations and it set us up to fail. One of the things that Elizabeth and I have been most grateful for is that we were given a Christian faith as we grew up and in college and at different places in our lives, we were given very early a Christian faith that expected suffering, that recognized that it was a part of following Jesus and that told us that we were called to follow him through it rather than follow him in order to avoid it. Now I say all of that, that's the hard truth, and I don't say that to make us cynical. We should not grow cynical or hard to suffering. It is sad and it is appropriate for us to grieve it and, and to weep for it, right? But I say that because we shouldn't be surprised when we face it. And I worry that too often, because they're trying to make Jesus say things that he didn't, the church and pastors have set us up to fail by telling us lies. So we should be realistic about suffering. But then here's the hopeful idea. The hopeful idea is that even in our suffering and brokenness, even in your suffering and brokenness, you are blessed. You're blessed. That's what's revolutionary about what Jesus says. He doesn't just say, yeah, you know, like some of you are gonna be poor and hungry and weep because life's tough and you shouldn't expect any better. What he says is blessed are the poor, blessed are those who weep. 
How can Jesus say that? The answer is because as he talks to his disciples, he's saying, even if these things are true of you, you still have me. Even if these things are true, you are still my disciple. We can actually see that. If you look at the first woe, Jesus says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Follow the logic there. What Jesus is saying is that the tragedy of being rich is that all you have is money. The tragedy of being rich is that you've just got stuff that's passing away. He's saying the tragedy with that is that if you confuse that with me, then you're going to just get money when instead you could have me. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, is Jesus enough for us? Is Jesus enough for us? Or are we demanding something else? Scripture often speaks of suffering as purifying us. Isaiah says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Now, refining is what you would do with precious metals. And the way that it would work is that you would take uh, this, this like gold or silver that was mixed with other, with other minerals and you would melt it. And then what would happen is that the other minerals, the impurities, would kind of rise to the surface and you would, you would scoop them out so that the gold would become purer. And scripture is telling us that suffering and affliction in the Christian life often works like that. That it separates out our idols. It separates out the worldly hopes that we have. And then it removes them to give us a purer love of Christ. Suffering asks us, is Jesus enough? But here is the good news. He is enough. Jesus is enough. And that is why we are blessed. To know Jesus is infinitely more valuable than to have possessions in this age. To know Jesus is infinitely more valuable than to have our fill of material comfort. To know Jesus is infinitely more valuable than to have the praise and accolades of human beings. To know Jesus is infinitely more valuable than to have the passing pleasures of this world. Our expectation for the faithful Christian life is that it should be one of present suffering, but ultimate blessing. And the truth that I want to leave you with is that that blessing is worth the suffering. That blessing is worth it because that blessing is Jesus. We have Jesus. We have, we have the creator of the universe, the redeemer of mankind, the king of the cosmos. We have Jesus who suffered and died in love for us. Jesus who calls us brother and who makes God our father and who puts his Holy Spirit in our hearts. We have Jesus. And the question is, who cares what else we have to lose in that pursuit? Jesus is a treasure without price. He is worth the loss of all things. In Jesus, in having him, we are truly blessed. Or as the psalm that we'll sing in just a minute puts it, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, High King of Heaven, my treasure thou art. Let's pray.
Lord, you are truly good to us. You are good to us in the blessings that you give us in this age, and you are good to us even when you take them away. You are good to us because you have given us yourself. We are able to feast in you and know you, to delight in your presence. Father, I pray that you would work in our hearts to strip away our idols and purify us and more and more give us hope in you. I pray that you would sustain us in the hope that Jesus gives through the suffering of this life, that you would comfort us as we weep, that you would give us your spirit to support us as we hunger. Father, I give you thanks that in you we have a secure inheritance and true blessings. I pray that you would teach us to delight in those things until you return and the kingdom of God is with men. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, friends, join us in the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray.